for the last few weeks especially has been the theme of honor. So we have looked at honoring widows, honoring elders, and today we're looking at the subject of slaves and masters, which, of course, as I say that, you immediately feel uncomfortable. Now, I want to keep in mind that as we go through this text, that there are some very significant differences between the type of slavery that we're reading about here in 1 Timothy 6 and the type of slavery that comes to our minds when we think of the transatlantic slave trade. Paul talks a lot about slaves and masters in a number of his letters. He does it in Colossians. He does it in Titus. He does it in Ephesians 6. The entire letter of Philemon is Paul writing to Philemon on behalf of his slave Onesimus. So there is a lot on this subject throughout the New Testament. But the primary difficulty when approaching a topic like this is the type of slavery we have in our minds as opposed to the type of slavery that existed during Paul's time. The late professor of classics at Howard University, Frank Snowden Jr., said this, In antiquity, slavery was independent of race or class, and by far the vast majority of the thousands of slaves was white, not black. Some other differences, for example, slavery in Paul's day was usually not permanent. In fact, some sold themselves into slavery for the purpose of becoming a Roman citizen or for the purpose of getting out of debt. They had more independence than what we would normally think of. They were paid, in many instances, to work for their masters. So when you and I think of slavery, this is generally not what we are thinking of. What are we thinking of? We're thinking of this description that Frederick Douglass gives us in his book, The Narrative of the Life of Frederick Douglass, as he is describing his first slave master, Captain Anthony. Here's what he said. He was a cruel man, hardened by a long life of slaveholding. He would at times seem to take great pleasure in whipping a slave. I have often been awakened at the dawn of day by the most heart-rending shrieks of an own aunt of mine, whom he used to tie up to a joist and whip, till she was literally covered with blood. No words, no tears, no prayer from his gory victim seemed to move his iron heart from its bloody purpose. Regardless of what we read in our text today, let me be very clear that slavery is an abomination to God. Regardless of slavery here in 1 Timothy 6 or the slave trade that we think of in the transatlantic slave, all human beings have been created in the image of God and have value, dignity, and worth. Slavery is a result of the fall of man in Genesis 3. This was not the design of God. So the question then is, why does Paul not come out in this letter or in any of his other letters and just explicitly go against it? And that's a great question. But the reality is that Paul does give instructions in many of his letters about how slaves and masters should uh, react to one another and how they should treat one another. And because Paul has given us this instruction here today regarding masters and slaves, you might be wondering, How in the world is this text even applicable to us? We don't live in this type of society anymore. 
So while the actual topic of bond servants and masters doesn't make a whole lot of sense to us, there is application for us today as Christians living in 2023. Because Paul knew that the church was God's plan for reaching the nations, he gives instructions to masters and slaves, but the application for us is what's most important. And here's the application from this passage. Number one, Paul is concerned about the name of God, the beauty of the gospel, and the love that exists between Christians. This is what this passage is about. Paul is concerned about the name of God, the beauty of the gospel, and the love between Christians. So number one, the name of God. Paul acknowledges here that people are, in fact, bondservants. But he says that they are under a yoke. He's not acting as if it doesn't exist. He's willing to say they're living under a yoke. A yoke was a device put on the back of animals and attached to the plow so that they could go across and pull whatever was behind them. So Paul acknowledges that some of the work that they were doing as bondservants was probably difficult. And at times... These Christian slaves might have been treated unfairly or harshly. So the question is, why then would they treat their own masters as worthy of honor if they were being treated in ways that were not pleasing to God? Now, even though this is not an exact comparison, the question for us would be, why would we treat a boss or a supervisor with honor if they had mistreated us? Why would we treat our enemies with honor? Why would we pray for those who persecute us? Love our enemies, as Jesus tells us to do in the Sermon on the Mount. The answer is because the name of God is at stake. Remember the context of this letter. Paul is writing to Timothy as he deals with false teachers in Ephesus who were not honoring the name of God. They were living sinful lives, devoted to false teaching, attempting to divide the church of Jesus Christ with their teaching. And we learned that they were doing all of it intentionally. This wasn't by accident. God's name is not honored when his people live sinful lives. So Paul is telling Timothy here to remind the bondservants that their conduct before their masters is important. Our conduct with those who have authority over us is important. Lost people are watching Christians to see how we respond and react. People that don't want Christianity to be true will look to the behavior of Christians as a reason why they will not give Christianity a chance. And even though those of us in Christ will never be free in this life from the presence of sin, we should still strive to pursue holiness, not only for our own sanctification, but to our witness for a lost world. We don't only behave appropriately when the conditions are fair. We don't only conduct ourselves with holiness if everything is going well for us or if we're paid adequately, or if we're getting the respect that we deserve. Human beings are the only part of creation that God created in His image. This means that we are to reflect who God is to the world around us. 
What do we know about God's attributes? We know that he is loving. We know that he is kind. We know that he is compassionate and gracious and merciful and slow to anger and fully wise and all-powerful. If I were to take each one of those attributes and examine my own life, the question I should be asking is, am I reflecting those attributes based on the way I live my life? Am I reflecting the image of God that I have been created in? Of course, we know that he fulfills all of these attributes perfectly, and we never will. But do we, as the people of God, reflect those types of qualities, even to those who might treat us unfairly or who treat us wrong? Does our reflection elevate the name of God or hinder the name of God? This, Paul says, is why slaves should honor their masters. It's not because they always deserve it, because these owners did not necessarily deserve honor. But there's something more at stake here than simply the relationship between the slave and the master. It's the name of God. And because God's name is honored, when his people honor others... That is attractive to lost people. So number one, the name of God. But number two, Paul tells us immediately after that, the beauty of the gospel is also at stake. Look what he says. And the teaching may not be reviled. This teaching that Paul is talking about is a reference to sound doctrine, which we have talked about throughout the letter. And part of that sound doctrine, of course, is the gospel. So Paul instructs Timothy that slaves should regard their masters with honor because not to do so could cause the faithful teaching of the gospel to be despised. Now, why would Paul say this? How would slaves not honoring their masters cause the teaching of the gospel to be reviled? Well, look back in your bulletin to that definition of the gospel that we read every week. And here's what it says. It says, each of us has sinned against God, breaking his law and rebelling against his rule. And the penalty for our sin is death and hell. But because of his love, God sent his son Jesus to live for his people's sake, the perfect obedient life God requires, and to die on the cross in our place for our sin. Now, why does that matter? If slaves, in the context of 1 Timothy, do not show honor to their masters, it essentially cheapens the death of Christ. Because it indicates that even though Christ died for all sin, there is this one area of their life that they refuse to submit fully to. They refuse to fully submit to obeying this commandment to honor their masters. And so it cheapens the significance of Christ's death. When you and I choose certain areas of our life that we say, these areas are off limits. I know God forgives me of all of my sin, but he cannot have this one area of my life, whatever that might be. It is cheapening the death of Christ because he died for all of our sins. And when we repented and placed our faith in Christ... We are giving him full control over every aspect of our being. Therefore, to live in a way where these 
servants were not honoring their masters is to lessen the power of the gospel. And it could potentially cause the gospel to be reviled by others. So the question for us is, does the way that we live our lives cause the gospel to be reviled by others? Even though none of us have masters that we are required to honor, we must never forget that all areas of our life are being evaluated by others, even when we don't realize it. Consequently, this means that people are forming an opinion of the gospel based on how we as Christians live our lives. This is a sobering reality to consider, brothers and sisters. The way I treat retail employees when I check out from a store matters. The way I treat waiters and waitresses when I'm finishing my meal at a restaurant matters. The way I conduct myself when I drive in my car, unfortunately, matters. People care about how Christians behave in every aspect of our life. It doesn't matter that we only behave well in this room. It matters how we behave in every single aspect of our life. People are watching. Do we exhibit the grace and the mercy and the love of Jesus Christ in our interactions with others? Or do we, by the way we live, allow others to look at the contents and the teachings of the gospel and say, I want nothing to do with what they believe. Our conduct isn't just important here. It's important every day of our lives. Now, I don't want anyone to misunderstand what I'm saying here. Individual people still are responsible to repent of their sin and place their faith in Christ. So no one is is given a pass here. But nevertheless, our conduct does play a role oftentimes in whether or not we even have the opportunity to communicate the gospel to those that we know, to those that we work with. It is often the way that we do conduct ourselves that give us the chance, down the road perhaps, to communicate the beauty of the gospel. And Paul knew this to be true. Even in the first century, So he tells Timothy to remind these servants to treat their masters with honor. Peter says something similar in his epistle when he says this, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure? This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So let me challenge you today in your interactions with people who perhaps are not believers, when they look at you, are they genuinely surprised and curious at the love and the joy and the peace and the patience and the kindness and the goodness and the gentleness and the self-control that you exhibit? That would be Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit. Hopefully, the way that you live your life 
not only surprises them, makes them curious about why you choose to live that way, but more importantly, attracts them to the beauty of the gospel. And this is why Paul is giving Timothy this advice. Perhaps these believing slaves, through honoring their masters, even if at times they were treated unjustly, is a way for God to demonstrate how he has transformed that believer and can perhaps transform another. And then number three, we see, as Paul concludes this passage, the love between Christians. Now, this is a very difficult subject here in verse 2. Paul is discussing a specific type of relationship between a believing slave and a believing master. Again, this is very important to remember the context. These types of owners, while still were involved in behavior that was not God-honoring, it's still very different from the type of slavery we have in our minds when we think of the transatlantic slave trade. Paul says these masters should not be shown disrespect because they are brothers. Now, perhaps some of the slaves who were Christians here were shirking or ignoring the responsibilities that they had with these masters because they were brothers in Christ. But Paul is encouraging them to do the opposite. He says, rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Now, I know that this particular passage, as well as many others in the New Testament, were used during the transatlantic slave trade to justify hateful, sinful behavior towards slaves. I know that these verses have been distorted and taken out of context in the 1800s and the 1900s. I know this to be the case. And those men who took these passages and distorted them to treat people inappropriately and harshly will face their due judgment for doing so. There is no justification for taking these passages in the New Testament and justifying the treatment of slaves in a way that would not be God-honoring. And yet, Paul says, the slaves here should serve their masters well because their masters are, in fact, brothers, he says. And the love between followers of Christ should motivate them to serve one another even with more intentionality than what one would normally expect. Now, this is radical teaching from Paul. It goes against the grain of what the world tells us to do. If an authority figure in our life, a boss or a supervisor, were to treat us unfairly at any point, the world would advise us to put a limit on how hard we're willing to work for that individual. They would tell us to just do the bare minimum. That individual hasn't treated you with respect and honor. Why should you treat them with respect and honor? Since we're not getting the respect and honor we deserve, we should certainly not reciprocate that by working intentionally and above and beyond for that individual. But if we were to really act the way that the world would encourage us to, we would be doing the exact opposite of what the gospel teaches When Jesus came to live among us over 2,000 years ago as we have been celebrating this season of Advent, 
He came to serve a people and to live among a people who were not deserving of his love and service. In fact, the Bible makes it very clear. He came to live amongst a people who were sinful, who were rebellious, who were disobedient, who did not deserve God's love. And even as Jesus traveled from town to town, healing the sick, raising people from the dead, multiplying the loaves, casting out demons, walking on water, ultimately, all of his good deeds were reciprocated by the Jews and the Romans, convicting him to death on a bloody cross. Jesus didn't willingly die for people because they were worthy of his sacrificial death. He willingly died because they were unworthy of his sacrificial death for sins that they had committed. But in love, he knew it was the only way that people could be reconciled to a holy God. So Jesus is our example, brothers and sisters, of loving those even in our own church that might not treat us the way we wish we were treated. Even if you are the one in the relationship who gives 100% of the effort, 100% of the time, just know that God honors the way that you are treating your brother and sister in Christ, regardless of whether or not they are honoring you. There was a recent book that came out. It's on my reading list. haven't read it yet. It's called Love the Ones Who Drive You Crazy. And it's talking about the very issue of how people within the body of Christ who might not naturally get along, how can they maintain unity within the body? And the thesis of the book is that even though disagreements and differences amongst Christians, even within congregations, cause many of us headaches, Christ is what ultimately keeps us all unified. And this is part of how we show off the power of the gospel that is at work within us. For example, many of us in this room might have different political views. And if we simply run away to a church who aligns with everything we believe politically, all we are communicating is that politics unite us, but the gospel doesn't. If we run away to a church because we're not getting every single preference met, all we are saying there is that we want to be unified around our preferences rather than ultimately the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is ultimately what unifies us. Don't you see how powerful it would be for lost people to come into our church? I knew that was going to happen. For lost people to show up at our church and sit beside or in between two believers who have radically different views about politics, radically different views about social media and cell phones and how to educate their children and that lost person sitting in between these two people who have very little in common outside of the gospel. Do you not think he would be attracted to that type of community? Because currently everyone in the world is completely polarized by all of these issues that I just said. And yet if we can come together in this place and disagree over politics, disagree over social media, disagree over which college sports team to pull for, if we can do all of these things, we actually show that it is the gospel that unites us. The death and resurrection of Jesus and what he has done in our lives. That, brothers and sisters, is attractive. 
That is what a lost world wants to see. If all we do is align with everything else in the world except the gospel, we don't give evidence of the power of the gospel to unite us amongst our differences. Do you think these slaves here who are reading this instruction from Timothy, so Paul is writing to Timothy, more than likely Timothy reads this letter, do you think these slaves would have naturally enjoyed hearing this advice? Working hard for their Christian masters who perhaps were treating them unfairly? No, they wouldn't have. But Paul is still urging them to do so because ultimately they are united by the blood of Christ. And it is the gospel that unites us. God is not simply calling us to love those in our church who are easy to love. He's calling us in our church to love those who are difficult to love. The ones who actually, as the book said, drive us crazy. Here's a quote from the book. He says, remember God's goal for your church to be a demonstration that Christ can unite what the world divides. This is what the gospel does. And there's no other solution that can do that. Politics can't do it. Education can't do it. Sports can't do it. Schools can't do it. The only thing that can unite amongst all of these differences that we see in our world today is the gospel. And I think that sentence sums up Paul's teaching in this passage. When slaves honor their masters, the name of God is ultimately elevated, the teaching of the gospel is upheld, and the love between Christians who are different is demonstrated. So my prayer for us as a church today is that we demonstrate the power of the gospel through our unity in spite of our many differences. And for those not in Christ, I hope that based on the way we live our lives here, you are attracted to the gospel, that you want Jesus You want to gather in a room full of people who, in spite of our many differences, can put them aside and say, we are ultimately united by the blood of Jesus Christ and in the power of his resurrection. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what an incredibly challenging passage. An uncomfortable passage. And in many ways, we wish that we had more answers to the context in which Paul is writing here. But we do know this. You have called us as your children to behave in a way that it is enticing and attractive to a lost world. So help us to examine our own conduct. Are we living faithfully for you through our behavior? God, we think about this morning even though here in America we're not dealing really with uh, even the transatlantic slave trade, but there is still slavery all around us. God, there is human trafficking rampant in our own country. There is slavery still happening in many places around the world, and we know that you condemn that type of behavior. We ask and we long for the day when Jesus returns and he sets everything right. And the wicked will be punished. 
and the righteous. Based on Jesus' righteousness in us, we will be reconciled to you one day in glory. So God, we lament over the very issue of slavery. We know it's evil. We know it's wrong. We pray for those who still are dealing with it today. And may we as Christians do whatever we can to be active in refuting and eliminating this horrible, horrible tragedy of sin. In the midst of this, though, we pray that we would be united ultimately by the gospel, by the blood of Christ. And if there are any here today who do not know you, we pray that your spirit now would do the work based on the preaching of your word to soften the hearts of people so that they might be transformed by the blood of Jesus. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.